0: Is that what I'm saying?
1: Rough, radio. Rough, trade radio. <laughs> radio. Rough Trade Radio. Rough Trade Radio. Rough Trade Radio. Rough Trade Radio. Is it Rough Trade Radio? Rough Trade Radio. Rough Trade Radio. Rough Trade Radio. Rough Trade Radio. that? Hello and welcome to this special episode of Rough Trade Radio. I am Liv Siddle and I'm joined today by the legend that is photographer, designer and band member of The Basement 5, Dennis Morris. Hello, Dennis.
0: Hi, how are you?
1: I'm really good, thank you. How are you?
0: I'm very, very, very good, yeah.
1: How long are you in London for?
0: I'm here for another couple of weeks.
1: Fantastic. um, Back in L.A. Do you live in L.A.?
0: Well, I've lived in many, many places. I've lived in Japan. I've spent some time in China, uh, Korea. And so L.A. now is kind of like the new base for me, you know.
1: Cool. Is it nice to be back in London, though? I suppose like an old stomping ground for you.
0: London is cool. You know, it's um, it's nice to come back, you know, um, and then to deal with all the antagonism when you get back. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. Um. So for those people listening who are not aware of the insane amount of things you've crammed into your whole life, um, I suppose I'll give a kind of bit of a background on, on what you've done, which is quite difficult because there is so much, but I suppose it all starts back in 1974 when yeah. you were a teenager and you met Bob Marley and...
0: That's right, the infamous story, yeah. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. What happened was Bob was coming over to do his first tour of England, and I'd read it because I was very much into music as, as well as photography at the time. And um, so I read in the NME, I think it was that, um, he was coming to do his first tour of England, and uh, he was in to play at a club called the Speakeasy Club in great uh, Margaret Street. So I went down there and waited and waited and waited and uh, eventually turned up and I said to him, "Can I take a picture?" And he said, "Yeah, Martin, come in." <laughs> so um, I went inside the club. They were doing their sound check and stuff, and between breaks, and he would ask me what it was like to be a young black kid in England, and I was asking him, well, you know what Jamaica was like?" Uh, and he really talked to me and uh, told me about the tour, and he asked me if I'd like to come along. So I said yeah. So next morning, I packed my bags as if I was going to do sports and, uh, <laughs> went to the hotel and uh, jumped in a van in those days there's no tour bus it was a transit van and there's a very famous image of from that where Bobby's looking back at me and, uh, and i'm going to sort, of, sort of row seat behind him and he looked back at me and said you ready dennis i went yeah man <laughs>
1: oh my god that is cool how they, old were uh, you
0: uh, I was around sixteen.
1: Yeah. So, were you allowed? Like, what you know? Were you allowed to just go on tour? I mean,
0: <clears throat> well, I had a sort of funny upbringing as such. Um, I never knew my father. Um, came to England with my mother very young. Uh, grew up in England, and um, and so I was kind of a bit of a wild thing, really. And um, but I found myself through photography. Mm-hmm. Um, I, jo- I joined a local choir, uh, St. Mark's in Dawson and uh funny enough the the patron of the church was a man called donald patterson who was an inventor of photographic equipment and oh uh, wow and he got involved with the church and uh, one of the things he did was he created a photographic club for the choir boys and when i was nine i walked into the dark room and saw one of the older boys doing a print and i looked over his shoulder he took a piece of paper put it on what i like i didn't know at the time I was calling larger light came on i saw the image on the paper counted for a few seconds, switched the light off, picked the paper up, put it into this dish. I didn't you know what it was, rocked it, and this image appeared. And I just thought, wow, this is, this is for me, magic.
1: It's funny, isn't it? I think a lot of photographers say that their first step into the darkroom was something that kind of cemented their career from that moment almost because something about it just it's a, attracts some yeah. people and they feel a very powerful mm-hmm. sensation when they go in there.
0: Well, it's a magical process because, you know, you've got this camera in your hand. And you take the uh, picture, and for me, the next stage after that was when I learned how to develop the film, and that was, again, magical. But then when you take to the next stage, you know, when you print an image and stuff like that, that's like the proof and a pudding. Because, you know, what you've got eventually is what you saw, as they say in photography, with the third eye, you know, proof. You hold it in your hand, you know. And it's, it's just incredible. You That's know?
1: so magic, yeah. isn't it? What kind of camera did you have when you went to go and photograph Bob Marley in the speakeasy?
0: Well, I was very fortunate. Uh, Mr. Patterson um, really took to me and um, he was a master photographer. But he came from a background of reportage. And uh, so he, he'd always loaned me his Leicas. So I was very spoilt, you know. So I was using Leicas from a very young age. You had a
1: Leica. I yeah. yeah. dream of having a Leica.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. But it, it's, it's a awful camera to use. Doing live gigs, yeah, it there. really it, it really is. But I mastered it. I really mastered. it I Yeah, those
1: the, that can master it, it's amazing. Yeah, for yeah,
0: because of the focusing system, mm. you know, it's um range finder focusing mm. system. So it's like you get a double image. You have got to put the two images together.
1: It's hard know. to do it quickly to very, get yeah. a very mm-hmm. yeah. Which I suppose with music photography, you have to. Yeah, yeah a lot of things are moving around. People are yeah,
0: like, you know. But I mastered it though. I really got a. Eventually, I had a technique where I just would, just and you know. That's great. Yeah.
1: Um, I mean, there's just so many things we can we can talk about. I suppose. Okay, so you went on to hmm. um, photograph Bob Marley on his tour for the next seven years. Um, You're right uh, up
0: to his passing. Yeah, right up until until he died. <clears throat>
1: yeah. Um Which must have been an extraordinary seven years, and you must have seen kind of the world of uh, the music world change.
0: Yeah. Well, Bob was, you know, um, was more than a musician. Really, Bob was a messenger. Yeah. You know, he really was, and Bob was. Godlike, Bob was everything you can think of. He really was some something incredible. So for me, as a young black kid, you know, growing up and having this dream vision of being a photographer, um, my only person that was really behind me was Mr. Patterson. My parents, you know, they weren't never into it. And then when I met Bob, you know, he just—I never met a black man that had so much confidence and just knew where he was going and everything was possible. And he told me, you can do it, you know, Dennis, don't, they're going to tell you, you can't do it, you know, and, but you can, you know, and, and I just soaked it all up. I just soaked it all up and it just, you know, it just stayed with me right through, you know.
1: Was he like that with a lot of people? Would he often find the goodness in people and then bring it out and encourage them to continue something that they were passionate about?
0: He was very critical of people and uh, very... F- Uh, funny man as well he had a really good sense of humor but at the same time he didn't suffer fools gladly you know in that sense and um, you know if if you really had something in you and you saw it and you came to him in whatever way you know he would encourage you to pursue it but at the same time if you just came with nonsense you know he would just say chow move
1: (laughs) (laughs) and in terms of him being a subject to photograph um was he happy in front of the camera he seems to have been
0: but I think the thing with between Bob and I was that um, he was, I think, the first Jamaican musician that really understood the power of imagery. Mm. And so from that first tour when I went with him, and what, another one of the famous shots from that was the one with the, with the big spliff. Burning. Yeah, the most famous picture of yeah. him ever.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Teenage uh, boy's bedrooms picture.
0: Yeah, you know. And that came about when he said to me, let me show a smoker spliff, Dennis, you know what I mean? <laughs> <clears throat> I never got part. It was only three shots. The four shots, I was out. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, but the thing about him was, as I said, I think, you know, he really understood the power of imagery. And um, and when he saw those images of mine, I think he realized I understood what he wanted to project. Got it. So that's how then became a kind of uh, relationship in that sense because we never actually ever took any images in a photo studio. Everything was all, always done on the road, in a hotel room, in the house where he was staying in Jamaica, wherever it may be. And what it was was, <coughs> excuse me, we'd be like um, talking together, you know, smoking, whatever it may be. And then I would see something and I would just take the camera and just take it and then just put it down, simple as that. You know, there's like images of one where one way he's like pulling his locks in there. Again, we were just talking and he said, show sure, Dennis, let me show it to be free, man. And he's like, jump, jump, just, you know. And for me, it was just, but you see, the thing was, I couldn't say to him, I missed it, Bob. Can we do it again? You <laughs> <He> would say, "Chum, <laughs> no. <on>, move." <laughs> you know what I mean, I had to be ready. Everybody had to be ready. When you were with Bob, you had to be ready. Man had to be, as they said, conscious, and that's how it was. You know.
1: That's fascinating. What conscious? Conscious in what way?
0: Conscious of your surroundings, conscious of where the conversation that you're talking about. Right, so being alert. Yeah, what it would lead to. So for me as a a photographer, it was like, you know, when we were talking, whatever was going on, I knew I was uh, to be aware that it was going to lead to something. So I would would prepare myself. So when it came, I got the shot. As I said, sometimes three, four frames. And that was it.
1: Incredible. Um, We're going to have to sort of move through the rest of your career now quite quickly. Um, So then Bob Marley um, obviously very sadly passed away uh, at a young age and then you went on to spend a year documenting the Sex Pistols, which was a Mm. bit of a change of scenery. Um, (laughs) I can't imagine what that must have been like. How how did that come about? How did that kind of career change?
0: Well, basically it was a beautiful thing that really happened because um, punk came, uh, the rise of punk, um, really uh, at the same time as the rise of Bob Marley in that sense. So I always say to people that what I learned from Bob, I gained from Bob, was uh, the spiritualness and the consciousness. And what I learned from Punk was how to kick the door down and take what I want, in that sense. (laughs) So, you know, one was a spiritual thing and one was an aggression thing, you know, in that sense. But they were both on the same but parallel lines in that sense. So realistically what happened was when um, John Lydon... uh, saw those images of Bobham of mine, um, he got in touch and said, um, you know, um, if I wouldn't be involved. And so we met at Vernon Yard, um, Virgin, and um, you know, what was really weird about it, we all kind of grew up in the same neighbourhood. Really? really? Yeah. John was in Finsbury Park, I was in Hackney, Dalston, but he used to go to Hackney Technical College, which was in my hood.
1: No way. Yeah.
0: And we all used to sort of go to the same kind of blues parties, you know, like people like Wobble, Joe Wobble was there, uh, yeah. you know. And uh, But it was kind of thing, you know, sometimes you find that like, you might meet somebody X years later and you're like, oh, I didn't realise. Yeah, I used to go there. Yeah. And it was like <laughs> one of those kind of scenarios. So in- instantly we clicked, you know.
1: And then was it the similar thing in terms of you rather than going to studios, you were just kind of following the band around and just being yeah. on the tours and that kind of thing? Yeah,
0: because again, that like, comes from that um, influence of uh, Mr. Patterson, of reportage, mm-hmm. which is basically, um, you know, it's, a, it's a studies of the human psyche in that sense. So realistically, you know, you have to read situations and prepare yourself for it in that sense. And that's how it was with me with a sex pistol. Nothing was ever done in a, in a photo studio. Everything was just done on the road. All the chaos, everything, you know. I mean, there was some madness. There was a, great, a famous shot of Sid's um, um, hotel room in Coventry one night, he went absolutely berserk, he completely wrecked the room, you know, and I was, my room was next door to his, and I just heard all this commotion going on, and his, everything being smashed and broken, then he went quiet, and I got up, picked my camera up, pushed the door and walked, and it was like a, a direct hit with a bomb, you know, and it was incredible, and even a shot of him when he was smoking, you know, again. What we were trying to do there was trying to get him off the um H, you know, because he was really heavily into it. Yeah. So he said, "Right, well, you know, try smoking in that sense," but he couldn't smoke. He hated smoking. Really? Yeah, yeah. Hated smoking, and uh, but that's what gave me quite an iconic shot. And the funny thing about that shot is, um there's lots of bootleg posters around which says, uh, "Chelsea Hotel." It was never taken in the Chelsea <laughs> Hotel.
1: People just want it to be in there, don't they? Yeah,
0: it was taken in a hotel in Penzance. But really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: in Penzance? In
0: Penzance, yeah.
1: Oh, God, I can't imagine what the <laughs> hotel owner must have thought after that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that must have been an incredible time. I kind of realised maybe we should start playing some music. Um, I don't know which artist to go for. Maybe we could, um, after that, maybe we could play a Sex festival song, if you like. If you're into their music. Are you into their music? Oh, of
0: course. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Fantastic. Yeah, I'm glad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there any song in particular that you hear now and it reminds you of of that time being with the band? and
0: Of the Sex Pistols mm-hmm. or anybody in particular?
1: Oh, well, any one in their sort of scene, I suppose.
0: Um, no, I mean, Pistols, um, for me, the music is, um, you know, is, is never dated in any shape or form. I think a, tra- a track like uh, a song like Pretty Vacant, I think is pretty, pretty relevant today, you know.
1: Yeah. Sense, yeah let's play it now do you want to introduce it
0: here we go pretty vacant you're so pretty (laughs) i'm so pretty vacant
1: Pretty Vacant by the Sex Pistols. That was a really good intro. Thank you for doing that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so God, we've got a lot to get through here, obviously. Um, you then, after your year spent documenting the Sex Pistols, you went on to become, after you've been a photographer, become a designer instead.
0: Yeah, well, the design side of it came through, uh, again, very fortunate um, meeting with Terry Jones, who started ID Magazine. Oh, yeah. And what happened there was I got a phone call from him saying I didn't know who he was. He said, "Oh, he's that Dennis." I said, "Yeah." He said, "My name's Terry Jones." I said, "Oh, you yeah. know." He said, "I really like to meet. you. I love your work, and you know, and um, wanted to talk to you about something." So I met up with him, and he told me about this magazine called ID, and he said, "I'd love you to be involved." So I was actually kind of—I wasn't really partners with him, but. I would say at the very beginning with it with yeah. ID magazine.
1: Had he just had he already started the magazine back then or was it still
0: It was literally the, the first one was just coming out. Because it was
1: country. just a kind of street fashion zine. Yeah, it back was a then, fanzine, yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah. And, About what people were uh, wearing yeah. on the streets of London.
0: Exactly. And then Terry, what he used to do, they would just go around to the shops at King's Road and just leave them on on the you know, counters and stuff, you know, that kind of scenario. Yeah, he had no real distribution. But he was a great influence, an uh, amazing influence on me in terms of design because terry's design was very very um organic anything he would use in terms of the design and so i kind of learned um from him the aspect of design so what really happened was after the pistol that split the thing happened was um virgin had literally within months had decided i want to get involved with reggae music so i got a call from richard branson and simon draper and uh, said they wouldn't have a meet with me so i went down to vernon yard and i sat with him and they said oh well, you know gonna, we want to get involved with reggae music and uh, the plan is for richard to go to jamaica and um we want you to go with richard and so when richard you know signs the bands and artists whatever it may be uh, we'd like you to do the pictures for the album covers press and purpose and extra i said yeah i'd love to I then great turned, gig! Yeah, yeah. And I then turned to him and said, "Well, why, why don't you take John? You know, he's a big reggae fan, and he just..." John Lydon. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he just left the pistols, and um, he doesn't, you know. And they said, well, "A great, great idea." So a few weeks later, the three of us, myself, John Lydon, Richard Branson, on a plane, go to Jamaica, <laughs> and um, we step off the. We arrive in Jamaica, came out the airport, and there was this uh, group of rasters and they saw John and said, Johnny Rotten, man, God seal the Queen, man.
1: Oh, my God. And from that
0: moment on, we knew we were going to be cool. We knew everything was going to be great, you know. Such um, a great trio. Yeah, and the adventure began there because I obviously had a lot of connections in Jamaica through my work with Bob. So I knew all the artists from Big Youth to Uroy, you know, and, and obviously I'd been to Jamaica many times. Um, John had never been to Jamaica. Um, Richard had never been to Jamaica. So my job in some ways was to navigate them around. So John as well, I took him around to like Lee Perry's studio, Big Youth, a very famous shot of John with Big Youth. Wow. And, um, and somewhere along the line, that's when the idea, I'm sure, of public image was formulated, that dub sound. I think that's where it, was, it really came together was in that trip to Jamaica. And then we came back and then he said, "Oh, you know, I want to start a band, I'm going to call it Public Image Limited. I said, okay, great. I said, Well, why do you want to call it public image? Why don't you just break it down and call it Pill? P-I-L? P I L. Yeah. You know, I was kind of into abbreviation and stuff like that. He
1: said, Oh, oh
0: all right. And then I came up with this idea of basically the, the logo is actually based on an aspirin.
1: Oh, I see. Yeah.
0: So a lot of the designs I do uh are, are things which you've seen as part of your in your life. Yeah. That's why the pill logo is just so, you know, everybody loves it because it's, it, you know it.
1: Yeah, it's iconic. Subconsciously,
0: you know it. Like, yeah.
1: Not too much to get your head around.
0: Yeah, you know, and that's how I design. A lot of my design is is in that very simple things and sometimes mm-hmm. incorporating photography, you know.
1: Yeah. Well, I suppose similarly to how you approach photography, and that you're not going after kind of very constructed, um, conceptual shoots, you're just kind of getting. Yeah, it's like the most simple, simplest things. Though, yeah, you know, in that sense, people at their most natural, yeah, yeah. and you're kind of bringing out the, yeah, bringing yeah. out sort of the, the thing in them that you want to get out right. of it. Um, and then so I suppose after um after you created that logo, you then were behind the metal box packaging for. Yeah, the, album. the same
0: thing again. I did well. I did a. a I did the first uh, single, which uh, the concept and idea that came up with that was um, it was like a newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically it was actually printed a newspaper and then printed like a newspaper, made to look like a newspaper, like the sun. And basically um, and it was folded and put the this, this, this single in. Um, and then we made up all these fictitious stories. So from the single then we went on to the first album, which was um, uh, um, first edition. So we went from the newspaper to the first album, first edition, which is then based on a magazine. So when you look at the cover of, 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 the, of the first album, you know, it's, it's like a, a front cover of a magazine where basically you've got the song titles, like the contents.
1: Oh, like headlines. Like thing. headlines, yeah.
0: yeah I mean. And then John really wanted to get away from the, the um, punk image as such. And what was happening at the time, at the same time, I was doing some work with a band called Rose Royce who had that massive hit, um, car wash. Oh, yeah. So I then was then you know, experiencing the American music machine of a band on the road, so they had makeup, wardrobe, blah, 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 you name it, you know, rock and roll and then never had that kind of thing. But Americans did, and I was fascinated by it, you know. And so I approached a makeup artist and said, look, I've got this um, album cover to do with this band called Public Image Limited. She said, oh, I've never heard of them. I said, well, um, he, got, he used to be the singer in Sex Pistols." oh, all right. I said I've got this concept. I said, "Would you be interested in some makeup?" She said, "Oh yeah, I'd love to." So that's so. She, this woman then she did the makeup, and there was a guy at the time called Kenny Ken McDonald. He used to have a shop down at King's Road, and he used to all these zoot suits. So he provided the clothes, so. and that's how John got into the into the thing. So then we just broke away from that whole punk scenario, and then yeah. ke- came with this glossy image, which basically just blew people away. You know, and to this day, people are saying. Say to me, uh, you know, do you realise you're you you're the person responsible for all this sort of new romantic movement and there all these sort of bands dressing up and stuff like that, you know what I'm saying?
1: Well, it's true, so, isn't it? Yeah. It's such a good move to break away from, from one aesthetic to another, but yeah. also takes quite a lot of balls. And, you know, at that time, what I find fascinating is that all these things that happen, all, all the things in your career up to now, up to where we've got mm. to, just seem to be kind of well, – you make it sound as if it's happenstance, but it's not, but it's always, like, oh, you know, so-and-so just gave me a call. Oh, we just found this person. Mm. Oh, you know, I was in the right place at the right yeah. time, or someone gave me a chance. But I suppose uh, – what's that phrase? Fortune favours the brave, right. something yeah. a bit like that. So yeah. you're willing to, you know, be a teenager going to this yeah. club to wait outside for Bob Marley yeah. with your camera. like you know, That's you yeah. being brave, and then I suppose well, you know, it's like, just taking risks the whole yeah. time, isn't it, and then well, getting the benefit that. from risk.
0: Well, that's how life works, you know. You've got to step out of, the, out of your comfort zone, and you know, I mean to really achieve anything in that sense. So, I always had that kind of um, wandering spirit vibe about me, you know, always searching, always looking for things. So, for instance, after that first album, which basically just blew everyone away because no one was expecting that, and then came the second album, which is Metal Box, and again with the conversation with Johnny, said I want to call this album Metal Box. I said, ah, and as he said that, I said, ah. Oh. Something clicked in my head, and I remembered in my secondary school, every day going to school, every morning, because across the road to my secondary school was this factory called the Metal Box Factory. <laughs> and I never knew what they did. So I thought, you know what, I'm gonna check it out. So I went down there and I walked in, and lo and behold, they make, they made film canisters, <laughs> which turned out to be the exact size of a vinyl.
1: No way. So
0: I said to him, how much will it cost per, they gave me a price, and I said, how much will it cost to emboss the logo on top? They gave me a price. I went to see Virgin, told them, they said, you, you know, I said, no way you can do that. Metal box, you crazy? And I gave them a, the cost and stuff. They said, oh, okay, well, we can do like a limited edition then. Yeah. And so the metal box was born.
1: Incredible. How and many were made?
0: That. I'm not quite sure. I think there's rumours, um, I think about 20,000.
1: That's still quite a lot,
0: isn't it? Yeah, but I think there's a lot of bootlegs around. People always come to <laughs> yeah. me like, the, the thing about it is this, anyone, people come to me and say, oh, I've got a metal box, you know. And the thing about it is, it's all shiny, shiny. Oh. It's a fake. Because the real ones, they oxidise and they go rusty.
1: Oh, really? That's how
0: you can tell if it's a, if it's an original.
1: What, because it's kind of rusty? Because it's, it's,
0: a... it's, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're not there. They're not there anymore.
1: Um, I also, okay, right. First of all, can you please play a Public Image song? Just pick any of the songs, maybe from the album, the Metal Box album.
0: Um, Public Image.
1: Public Image. All right, you can introduce it.
0: You never listen to a word I say. It's the Public Image. <laughs>
1: Fantastic. Okay, so now I wanted to ask you about something that I I was aware of your work for a, a long time right. um, before. And I remember I've got this kind of bookmarks folder in my computer of things that I've saved to read again later. And I keep coming back to the same things. And I said them to friends and stuff. And one of them is something that you wrote on, on the Guardian website okay. for that feature they do called A Brush With Greatness. Uh, okay. And it is about the time when you went to go and photograph Marianne Faithful.
0: Oh right, and <laughs> it's one of the best
1: things I've ever read because I'm a big Marian Faithful fan, yeah. and I and I'm really curious about her. Uh, I'm going to read out a little bit because you basically went to go and do a photo shoot mm. for the front of her album cover when you were the art was it art director? I was oh, the art
0: director, Island, yeah, art
1: director. Mm. And I'm going to read out a bit now, which I've got here, which hopefully won't make you cringe too much by me doing this. Um, so you went out to a pub together, and then after a few more drinks, she asked to go to an Italian restaurant. We found a run-of-the-mill place, and she ordered tons of food, pretty much everything on the menu. The table was covered in plates, but it soon became obvious she wasn't going to eat any of it. For a while, I pretended not to notice. Then, quietly, she got up and turned the table over. I told the waiters I'd pay for everything and we left. Marianne found it very funny. I think she knew the importance of the album and its image. She was sussing me out, trying to get us to a place where she knew something electric could happen. Now, I've saved that whole article because of that line about Marianne as an artist... Trying to kind of put you on edge and mm. make things very like sexual and electric, so that a good portrait will come out of the shoot that would yeah, follow. Yeah, and that is just so fascinating. I love how she's almost kind of secretly collaborating with you to make the image that she wants. And you did get an incredible image. It's her sitting on the leather armchair, right? Yeah, smoking a cigarette.
0: cigarette
1: yeah, incredible.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, the the whole trip was, um, you know, to get to that point was um, was incredible because one of the things happened which. Um, when we left the studio when she first arrived she first said to me do you know who I am and I said well yeah of course she said you know this will be the making of you and I said "Yeah." know and, right. and then she <laughs> said oh I must have a drink so we left the studio went to a pub in Notting Hill and where the studio was just nearby and as we walked in it was really funny. she said on top of voice she said I'm not some cheap hook you know it's going to cost you at least 200 pounds and the guy behind the bar went yeah you right, mate well done <laughs> <laughs> So it was all the tests really. And by the time we got back to the studio, uh, we had lots of drinks and you know, the whole thing and stuff. But one of the things that I'm trying to get at is that this the way I work, I would say that if I was an actor, I would be be seen like as a method actor. Mm. So with Marion, I had to get into her world, you know. I mean, she drank a lot, she did a lot of drugs and stuff like that, but um and um we were just absolutely wrecked. But <laughs> I knew what I wanted. So I prepared everything, and all it was was just this one leather armchair. That's all it was. And three lights. That's all it was. And again, the way I worked today it is just like in a repertoire way. She sat on a sofa on an armchair, and uh, we talked and we joked and we did, you know, whatever, 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 whatever. And then basically, at some point now, that shot, when it came to it, she just basically was sweeping her hair back with a cigarette in her hand and then she went to it. And it's only one frame because it, no it was gone. One frame. That's all it was. One frame. You
1: just took one photo?
0: No, no. That shot, the one was just that one frame.
1: Wow. It's
0: only one frame to get to that point. So it wasn't like three or four or five because it was literally like a, and it was gone.
1: That's swimming. unheard of. Yeah.
0: And then after that, we were rolling around on the floor. And it was really funny. So it was a bit like a blow-up moment. So she's on the floor. I'm over her. Over mm. her. And then she turns to me and says, Don't you want to fuck me? Let's fuck. And I'm like, yeah, not yet. <laughs> click, 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 click. <laughs> In a minute. I
1: just trying to get my job <laughs> yeah, done. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. It was hilarious, you know. Wonderful woman. Absolutely amazing person. Incredible. Very talented. I mean, she's been... Low that you would not believe. At one point, she was actually sleeping on the street. I know, I read you know. that. Yeah, yeah she yeah, was yeah. homeless. She was homeless. I mean, you know, and she... From being Mick Jagger's number one, to be sleeping on the street and then to pick herself up and then to come up with that album, was, uh, Gro- Broken English, was absolutely incredible.
1: Yeah, yeah, really incredible. I think there's a lot of kind of sadness that, that kind of follows Anita Pallenberg mm. and, yeah. and Marianne Faithfull, just because, you know, you are going from... Mm. Being so in the public eye and being mm. like the favourite and being the kind of yeah. you know, on the arm of this person. And then, you know, both of them came out the other side and became incredible women in their own yeah. right. And yeah. that's just that's just great, yeah. isn't it?
0: Exactly.
1: Um do you wanna play a Marianne Faithful song?
0: Yeah. Um you know, one I've got two songs here which have, for me is I think um Working Class Hero I think is the best cover version of that John Lennon song ever. I really think that's amazing. the other one I really love is Guilt. So I'll let you choose Which one But those two tr- tracks For me you
1: know. I think let's do Working Class Hero eh?
0: yeah, It's such a brilliant Cover, cover of It really is
3: you
1: That was Working Class Hero, sung by Marianne Faithful. Um, Okay, now, look, we have to get on onto on actual business. Talked a lot about, lot about your photography um, and all the people that you've met. And I suppose during that time, um, The Basement 5 mm. came about. And this mm. is why we're, we're doing this interview is because um, the reissue of The Basement 5 mm. album is coming out uh, this September, September 29th. Um So I wanted you to tell me and the listeners, about how the Basement 5 formed.
0: <laughs> wow. The Basement 5, how that was formed. Well, basically... Did I just
1: say 5 or 4? 5. I said formed. <laughs> All right, got it. Oh, yeah, you said formed, <laughs> yeah,
0: but 5. But it was only 4 of us. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Okay, how did it form? Okay, let's start with the, the logo. The, the logo itself is... Um, I don't know if anyone ever remember this, but there was a game called Simon Says... Which was like a, a round thing which you press in the sequence. You had to follow the sequence of the flashing lights. Oh, okay. So the logo is actually based on that. So basically, that is the elaborate bell to get to the super bunker. You have to know the code, follow the sequence. So that's what the, the, the logo is based on. But the band was formed really, well, to put it this way the band actually existed before me. Um, they were. Pretty mediocre reggae band, um, and they got themselves in a bit of a spot. And they actually went to um, Portugal. Um, I knew the guys, and they got into some, some problems. And they kind of rang me up and said, "Look, you know, we, we, we all our equipment's stolen, and blah. We've got no money. Can help us out?" So I sent them some money for them to come back to England. And they came back, and, um, and I sat down with them, and it was a bit like a Noel Gallo Oasis thing, you know, because I said to them, Look, you know, I've got this idea in my head for, for a band. I said, um, And I'd be really into you guys, are you going to be involved, you know, that kind of thing? And they kind of said, well, Yeah, okay. I said, but Okay, if it's going to happen, I'm going to take control of it, you know. I've got all <laughs> these ideas in my head the look, the sound, everything. And they said, "Yeah, okay, anything, you know, all right." So they, and, they, and they they went for it. So what then happened was this: so I was at that point still the art director of Island Records, and I was getting really bored because it was for me it was becoming too much of a corporate thing, and I didn't yeah. really feel comfortable with it. And I've always been sort of you know working on my own out there on the streets, or whatever, and you know, and I just didn't really like it. And I had this whole plan of things I'd like to do in my life. So one of the things I wanted to do was music. So then I thought, okay, this is the right time. So the guys were into it. So what I did was, it was really funny, um, I had this idea. So I went out shopping. I bought a load of, I went to Lawrence Corner, which was this uh, uh, hand shop in uh, Houston, yeah. where all the punks used to go buy clothes and stuff. And I got into bought these um, four, um, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, Long John's. Right, and then I went into this, walked into this ski shop, and um, and they looked at me thinking, was he want?" <laughs> you know, you, and I literally bought the entire shop. I bought a load of ski goggles and gloves and all that kind of stuff. So we were, you know, the idea was wearing these um, long johns, ski goggles, gloves, everything else. And then what I did was then I did a photo shoot with them, which I did myself. Yeah, and um, so just by pressing the camera. Running, like, standing oh, there.
1: self-timer, yeah, Self-timer,
0: yeah. that kind of thing. <laughs> and then did a Prince, and then I had a meeting with Chris Blackwell. He was in town, so I sat with him. And Sorry, said, Chris Blackwell, this, who was uh, the... Um, owner of...
1: Uh, um, Island records. records. Island Records, yeah. Got it. Yeah.
0: And uh, so we sat down, and I took out this pictures and I said to him, oh, you've got to look at this band. And I showed him a picture. He said, oh, wow, who are they? Hmm. So they, they look amazing I said well this band called Basement 5 <laughs> he said really I said yeah, yeah he said is there any music I said not at the moment I said but there will be soon so you know he was excited I thought right first tick next thing I did that's was, so
1: sneaky of you to go uh, along and show <laughs> <laughs> the owner of Island Records yeah, a band that hasn't even made a song yet just to get yeah, him interested I that know. is clever
0: then we went into the studio booked some time in the studio uh, which I paid for and then we just did this track called Silicon Chip um Then he came back a few weeks later, played him the track. He said, oh, my God, it's absolutely incredible. Who are they? Who are they? And so I said, well, actually, I said, that one there is me.
1: It's actually
0: me. <laughs> he said, you're kidding. I said, no, it's me. It's me.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> so he got all excited and everything about it. And uh, so I said, oh, you know, we're going to be doing a gig soon. And uh, and then what happened was at the same time, um, you know, he actually signed us, and then basically at the same time as signing us, they'd sign you too. Ah, and I want to tell people this, they say they say you're kidding, and you too. The first gig we did was our supports.
1: No, and way. a few
0: other gigs after that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it was. Yeah, yeah.
1: You too were supporting you guys. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah.
0: But you know what they say: beware the support band. Yeah. Because we had a guitarist who we called the um, um, JR, yeah. used to wear a cowboy hat and a flying V guitar.
1: Cool.
0: The Edge, eventually, remember? The cowboy oh, hat yeah. and the flying V.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah.
0: And a lot of the antics I uh, at the time, I used to climb on top of the PA and, you know, the, the U2 in the early days, all those things. And so I always remember after we, you know, they did their set, we went on, they'd be sitting at the side of the stage look, checking us out.
1: Watching you know, carefully, watching taking carefully, notes.
0: Taking notes, yeah. Oh, shit. But the key to it is this. They had a manager, a good manager, a great manager. So, so great that he's actually the fifth member of the band. You know, mm. it's a five-way split. We never had management.
1: Yeah. Well, I suppose you were kind of in charge, weren't you, and just kind of, well,
0: just well, was, taking the, a lead. Yeah, but the problem was we were just so ahead of the game. You know, four black guys kind of playing a fusion of dub, punk, you know. You, it was just, I mean, it was just so ahead of its time. I mean, when we played, you know, black people would be like,
2: what the fuck is this? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, they had no yeah. clue.
0: We had a massive following, but it was a white following, blacks. People never got into, couldn't handle it, never, you know what I mean? That's what I was it, just seen like a, like a freak from out of space, you know. I used to have a Mohican, I had feathers in my hair and stuff like that. And people, black people used to cross the street with they saw I'm like, fucking weirdo, man, what the hell is going on here? You know what I mean? And, uh, I
1: bet you looked so cool.
0: I did look really cool, you know. <laughs> but now when I see a lot of the black kids in, you know, I'm just like, oh, well, you know, it's done that. That's, you know what I mean? But, I
1: know. but you kind of carved your own genre, which is. Yeah, know. I
0: mean, the music itself was ahead of its time. Lyrically, it was ahead of its time. And like I was saying to somebody the other day, I said, look, let's, okay, let's, let's look at some of the tracks. Like, for instance, you've got Grenfell, right? Okay, on the album, there's a track called No Ball Games, right? And it says this Do you live in a flat 20 floors up in small rooms with a view? This is modern living for the modern man. It's a brand new government plan. Grenfell, 24 floors, 20 floors up, small. I mean, you know, that's one yeah. of the songs. Another song on there is immigration. You know, immigration, do you know what it's like? Immigration, you sport many lives. Do you know what it's like to live separate lives? I'm not talking about man and wife. I'm talking about some people's lives. You live in Britain with brother Sean, 10,000 miles away, his brother's uh, sister, you know, understand and that kind of, and it's, it's how it, the whole immigration thing can just split people you know, totally in that, in that way. So it, the album itself, track for track, every single track on there is relevant today. Musically also, it's so relevant. What's bizarre about it is this: you got this movement called Afro Punk. Well, we were the godfathers of Afro punk.
4: Hello. Yeah, <laughs> you know
0: what I mean. We were there from the very beginning, you know. Yeah. So musically, lyrically, visually, everything about it is just so now. The music has, n- has never dated in any shape or form.
1: I mean, I find it quite alarming that the lyrics you were singing back then are still relevant now. But that's probably a conversation for the event, time. Yeah. But would you like to? I'd love you to play a song now um, from from then. now on
0: Basement Five. Yeah. Yeah, let's go for No Ball Games. It's one of my favourite songs, actually.
1: Great. That was No Ball Games by The Basement Five. Um, so, I mean, as it's a reissue, it's kind of, everyone's really excited about this reissue, The Basement Five, coming back into our lives. It's relevant. The lyrics fit. The sound fits. Who who do you want to be listening to this now?
0: Everybody. Everyone. You know, everyone. I think it's one of those things where, as I said, it's timeless, mm-hmm. uh, musically, lyrically. You can't date it, and I think so many people missed it. Um, I remember one review when it first came out; uh, they said it was as subtle as a brick. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's good. Um, but the problem, or the truth, and reality is, is that uh, lyrically at the time, in fact, somebody actually pointed out to me. They said, you know, the problem was for 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 the band at the time was that lyrically it was in the 80s and everybody in the 80s was just so busy shoving money in their pockets. Mm. They were never really checking out what was going on socially and politically in that sense. Now, everybody is becoming very, very social aware and politically yeah. aware. You know A lot of young people are becoming very, very socially aware and politically aware uh, in that sense. And with all these things that's going on from Grenfell to whatever it may be, you know, the wars in Europe, you know, in Iraq, Syria, all these things, you know. I mean, like for instance, um, uh, there's another track on the album called um, Last White Christmas. Last White Christmas was in 79, plenty of changes inside. Peanut president can't play chess, that's why America's in check. England is on the female rule, is that why we turn into bloody fools? You know what I mean? Like Rondon run Shah, red flags flying high in the sky, making people believe they can fly. I mean, everything again which is going on, you know, politically was said then. Yeah. You know, um, it, it, it's, it, it's incredible.
1: It's the perfect time for it to come back.
0: Perfect timing. Perfect, perfect timing. Has
1: know? it been emotional for you personally to revisit this music? And does it make you feel nostalgic for, for when you know, when all that was first being recorded and for how you were then?
0: Um, just makes me feel proud. Um, and, you know... Um, that i've done something on in, in 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 that way which is still standing the test of time it's like my photography you know all my images stand the test of time you know from the bob marley's sex pistols you know and i've worked from every genre of music from 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 reggae bob marley punk right through to radiohead i worked with um oasis i did a first tour with them in japan uh, Goldie, drum and bass, you know. I worked at every single genre of music, but the key to it, I mean, even like the Stone Roses, you know, mm. the first show the Stone Roses ever did, I put them on.
1: Really? Yeah,
0: first show they did in London, I put them on. See, this is know? what
1: I mean about your career. Yeah. It's impossible. Yeah. You just like bring something like that out, you yeah. know, you've just made such you a know, mark on music. So, you you just done you, everything.
0: You know, I've touched everything. Yeah. And, but the beauty of it for me, as I see myself, is this that everything I've ever touched, has always been something very, very special. Because, you know, I'm one of these um, artists who basically... A lot of photographers did pictures of the Sex Pistols or Bob Marley, but my images are the ones that stand above everything else. Yeah, so you true. Know, same with the Sex Pistols. They
1: become iconic. Yeah,
0: same with uh, uh, Oasis, same with Radiohead, same with, um, oh, you know, you name it, Goldie. You
1: know. I think that's just testament to how an artist's character is much more influential on how their photos or whatever come mm. out than it is mm. about skill or about equipment. I mean, yeah. if, if you've got it inside you that you are an interesting person who is fueled by a desire mm. to make stuff, you're going to make interesting things. And I think you've, you've got that. You're passionate and you you've, you went out to go and do something mm. when, you. when you really only had mm. a camera at the age of 16. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, from a few lessons. And, yeah. you know, you just... People obviously want to be around you and they want to they want you to to be there to document it because they know you can see things. that Maybe they know how they want to be seen and that you can capture that, something like that.
0: Well, as they say in photography, it's it's, not what you see with their two eyes. It's what they call a third eye, which is what you see with, you know, which is the hidden eye, the hidden thing. Because basically what you do, with I do, what I do is I take away the mask. We all wear masks. And I take away the mask and reveal the true self. That's what I've always done in all my imagery.
1: Is there one image in particular that you think is the one where you've really nailed someone's like true character? It's probably quite a few actually, but yeah. is
0: there... um all of them really.
1: All of them. Yeah. Just yeah. all of them. Yeah.
0: No, I'm not I'm not I'm not bragging in that sense because <laughs> no, I as know, I, I, I said, you know, it's kind of a funny way because as I said, um financially for me in some ways working at that time as a as a as a as a, as a photographer. I never really made what a lot of other photographers made because I never really shot everybody bang, 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 bang. Yeah. You know, I worked, at the time, I worked exclusively with um, the Sex Pistols. Yeah. I couldn't go near the Clash or the Damned or anybody else. A lot of the other photographers have got pictures of the Pistols, the Damned, the Clash, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The punk movement, I've got everything on the, on the the on the Pistols. Reggae... Bob Marley, I've got everything there. And then beyond Bob Marley, I've got literally, I've probably got the biggest catalogue of, of um, images of all the great r- r- artists, from big youth to whatever, you know, I've got in that sense. And it's the same way I worked, in that sense. So for me, it was never really a um, pursuit of financial gain, in that no. sense. It was a pursuit of perfection through my art form, because I always saw myself as an artist, except I used a camera mm. and not a paintbrush or a scalpel, you know, you know what I'm saying? I always saw myself as an artist. And that created a lot of problems in the beginning, because a lot of people thought, "Well, what do, what do you think you are?" <laughs> you see what I mean? Yeah, especially you know, and you, when you know, were, you were know, island you know. and
1: things were getting a bit more corporate, you were yeah, like this isn't you know. right for me. Yeah, but yeah, you know, you did the right thing and made the leap. So yeah,
0: in that sense. Uh, so it was always a it was always a struggle for me, believe it or not. You know, it all sounds very cool and easy, but <laughs> it was it was all it really was a very uphill um, struggle for me all along the way.
1: No, I bet it was hard. We're going to have to finish up now because we're reaching our time limit, okay. but we're gonna to have to end on another basement five song, which is fine, yeah. fine by me <laughs> so maybe have a think about we've already done no ball games, yeah, so is there another uh track on the album that you're particularly excited to get back out into the world and to and to kind of revisit and show everyone again
0: well, for instance, um silicon chip, yeah, I mean no silicon chip, ate no efficient chip. It's the media world, the modern age, moving to the future before we go. Old automatic machines, remote control, more leisure time for young and old.
1: Incredible. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much, Dennis. Thank you so much. You are a great guest. And I hope you can come back to Rough Trade soon. And I'd I love cannot to. wait for uh, the Basement 5 album. And I think everyone out there is going to be just as excited uh, as we all are here in the shop. Um, and yeah, thank you so much. And thank now you I can introduce the last song
0: Silicon Chip.
5: remote control to get better control Silico chips, egg fish and chips, oh silico chips, you egg fish and chips. It's a brave new world, don't be afraid, plenty of time for you to play with your kids. Remote control, more leisure time for young and old. Automatic machines, remote control to get better control. Silicon chips, hey fish and chips. Oh, chips. Yeah,
3: right, chips. Rough Trade Radio
0: St
4: Vincent, Mass Education Available in store and online at roughtrade.com In Los Angeles The wind never comes In Los Angeles The mother's no m-